0: It's so good to have all of you with us today. I'm Randy, if I haven't met you yet, and we're grateful that you've come to share with us and we're going to get into God's Word. Today we're going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite topics anyway, and that's the idea of waiting. Don't you like to wait? I mean, really, how many of you just loved just like an hour-long wait for something that you, you know, you love it, don't you? Right? How, about, how do you handle waiting on your food in a restaurant? Like, did they have to go kill it? You know, what is, what is going on back here? Or maybe sitting in traffic, you know, uh, traffic is a killer. Even in Versailles sometime, you got like four cars, you got to wait, you know, get through a light. It's horrible, you know. How about getting off an of airplane? I don't know if you fly very much, but if you're in the back and you're like, what are those people doing up there? You know, they have to come all the way to the back to get their luggage. What is going on there? Or maybe it's waiting for someone, my personal favorite, to cook in, in a, a convenience store, waiting for someone to decide what lottery ticket they want to buy i mean there's like 50 to choose from you know and you which one you want how many you want you got to scratch them there at the counter to see what you can buy next i'm sorry if i get you but that kind of goes through me a little bit the reality is that most of us hate to wait for anything i mean a microwave is too slow for a lot of us that's kind of where we are someone said that now our attention span was about eight seconds kind of like that of a goldfish We don't want to wait on anything, right? And uh, we know that the Bible says that patience is a virtue, for sure. We know also the Bible says the Holy Spirit uh, produces fruit of patience in us. But the reality, most of us are still, uh, we're still cooking on that. We haven't, we're not completely done. But we also know that um, we've heard that good things come to those who wait. And we're going to talk today a little bit about waiting, and in a strange way, I guess. But understand that God... Is oftentimes a God of waiting, that God, unlike us, doesn't get in a hurry about things. In fact, down through time, <clears throat> uh, mankind has spent a lot of time waiting for God's perfect timing. While we think everything's going to happen right here, right now, in the moment, God has a time for everything. The Bible talks about a season for everything, and we see that all the way back into time. In the beginning, long ago, God made man. We know probably man didn't wait very long to sin. Probably happened pretty quickly in creation. And then a promise was made that God was going to right everything. He was going to restore man back to his relationship with God. And God made a promise that he was going to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to make things right. And that promise was repeated time after time in the Old Testament, many, many times, over a period of a couple thousand years they were told God's gonna to send him in the right time. What they do, they had to wait. They had to wait for the Savior. And then Jesus finally came in God's perfect timing. He came and lived a perfect life. He died to forgive us of our sins. And then he rose from the dead. And I can imagine that in Jesus' mind, you know, Jesus left heaven to come down here and spend about 33 years or so in God's perfect timing. But I would imagine that Jesus was ready to go back into heaven. Can't you? I mean, things are not the great down here, especially compared to heaven. So he was ready to go back into heaven. So he told his disciples that now the mission would be theirs. we talking about this in the book of Acts. And now they would go and share the gospel. But before they would even start doing that, they needed to wait. They need to wait. Now, why wait? A mission this great ought to start immediately, we would think. Let's go do it. While wow, the energy's there. The momentum's going on. Let's do it but Jesus said, wait. Again, God's timing. God's timing was perfect. Our timing, we think we got to do things in the moment. God says, sometime you just need to wait. Sometime we need to wait on God. Now, I don't know exactly the purpose for that. Maybe it was to see if they would be obedient. Maybe just, you know, I, I, he told them to go and wait. Would they obey that, uh, Jesus in that, or would they just go do what their, their own thing? Maybe waiting was a, near, a needed time of preparation. We know it happened that way, but maybe they needed to be prepared before, before they were to begin the mission, before this big event, we said the next big event, would be the coming of the Holy Spirit and the church would begin. But at any rate, Jesus said, I want you to go and wait. So last week we began the study on the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 1, we read about Jesus kind of wrapping up his ministry. He was crucified. He was restored back to life again. He, he was appeared for 40 days, proving his resurrection, instructing them in, through the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts says. And then he called his followers together. He was about to um, go up into heaven. He told them, go in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit will come. Go, and then to wait. So let's pick it up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 1. And uh, it says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and along with his brothers. So the Mount of Olives, was a hill about a little over half a mile or so from Jerusalem. This is where the Jesus had called them. They went up there. They saw him go up into heaven. And then he said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. So they did. They walked back in. They went to an upper room, where maybe even the one that they had met in the last, uh, for the Last Supper. We don't know. But the Bible says that they were staying there. They, so they were kind of camping out there. And they were remaining together. There was, they, were, they were definitely doing community together. And there were 120 of them together, including the disciples. By the way, minus, minus Judas the betrayer. There were several women, I'm sure including Mary, who was Jesus' mother. She was there, of course. Um, There was also um, other women who had followed Jesus, had helped care for and support Jesus' ministry, even financially. Other believers, men and women, and a lot of people there, even Jesus' brothers who had uh, not believed in him, they had doubted that he was the 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 Messiah. But after the resurrection, now they had become believers. Uh, You see, Mary and Joseph went on to have other children after Jesus. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. Uh, divinity of, and of Jesus, or excuse me, of Mary who was humanity. But Mary and Joseph, they had their own children. Uh, they had at least two daughters. We don't have their names, but they had at least um, four, uh, four sons. Uh, there was James who later became a leader in the early church and who wrote the book of James. There was also Joseph and Simon, and there was Judas who actually wrote the book of Jude. This is not the same Judas, of course, that betrayed Jesus. You know what you notice in the Bible that there are a lot of names that are similar, right? The name James, John, Simon, and Judas, a lot of them, so they can really be easily um, confused there. But but try to keep them straight. Uh, Judas, the brother of Jesus, wrote the book of Jude. Any rate, all coming together, these men and women together would be the core of the church. 120 people. You know, when you think about that, it's kind of, kind of disillusioning in some way. At the height of Jesus' ministry, there were thousands of people who came to hear Jesus. Remember on uh, the mount when he fed them with the loaves and fishes, there were some estimate up to, up to 15,000 people who may have been there. They came and listened to Jesus. They, they heard what he had to say, but many of them just came to receive what they could, and then they went away. And then after Jesus' resurrection, hundreds Maybe even thousands co- collectively saw Jesus after his resurrection, but there were only 120 of them who were really committed to him. And when you think about it, change ha- things haven't changed a great deal. They really haven't down through time. I mean, people were, were pretty fickle no matter when we live. Today, a lot of people know in their heart they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they're not really willing to, to truly obey him. There's a mental assent, a mental agreement. Yeah, I know that Jesus is God's son. I believe in him. That's where a lot of people were, but that's not real faith. That isn't real faith. It's not saving faith that's going to get people there. It takes more than that. It takes a commitment. But these 120 people together were the real believers, and they were obedient to Jesus. And so they went back to the upper room there to wait. But when they got there, they didn't just kill time. They didn't just lay around and sleep. They didn't play cards and stuff like that. They, they were productive. There was an amazing sense of unity there. You know, in the past, if you read through the Gospels, you, you see that the disciples, many of them, they had their own personalities, kind of like we do today. And, and they had bickered and fought about importance and significance and roles and everything else. But at this point, their differences seemed unimportant. They were together in one place. They were together in heart and mind. Jesus drew them together. And so they met together. They stayed in the room and in community, and they prayed. They were constantly in prayer. You know, sometimes people wonder, why don't we see God move in ways like we saw in the Bible uh, that we're going to see in next week that begins this? And I think the answer may be because most of us don't commit this time together in prayer. We see three things that made a difference, perhaps that brought them into this place of of God using them in amazing ways. First of all is obedience. They went back and did what Jesus said to do. They went back and waited to the upper room. Secondly, fellowship. They were all together in one place. There was unity. And the third thing that made a difference was prayer. So maybe if we practice more obedience, more fellowship, and more prayer, we would see God move in greater ways. But they prayed together. They prayed for courage. They prayed for direction, obviously. They prayed also for the Holy Spirit to come and descend upon them, as Jesus had promised. And so they all continued together in prayer for approximately 10 days, solid, solid days of prayer and seeking the wisdom and the direction of God. You know, there's a great example here, really, and a great principle that I think this shows, and that is that prayer precedes doing. Prayer precedes doing. You know, a lot of times we think that we don't have time to pray. There's a job to be done. This job was huge. Jesus had given them a task, and they're like, we need to go do it right now. But oftentimes we mess up if we don't pray because we spend our time doing the wrong things. And we kind of make a mess of it. Imagine how they could have bungled this whole process if they had ignored Jesus' commands and if they had ignored prayer. What I've found sometimes is that sometimes doers don't pray And sometimes prayers don't do. Sometimes we just talk about it and pray about it, we don't do it. And sometimes we just do it without praying about it. But God wants us to pray and do, and He wants us to pray before we do so we do the right thing. So praying precedes doing. So the time that we spend praying is not time wasted. The time that we spend preparing and our hearts and minds is an important part of the work that we do. You know, in so many ways, prayer is a literal miracle. It's a miracle that we don't always understand. You know, we might think, well, we're just saying words and God knows what we need and God knows what needs to be done. But praying, prayer is a miracle. We do our work for Christ in the physical and the material and the tangible and visible world that we're living in today. But prayer works in the invisible, immaterial, and spiritual world. There is a world of plane that we don't always see. And we don't understand the world like that. We know that it's real, though, and we know that's where the real battle, that's where the real work takes place. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we're, we're seeing everything on our plane, just you know, human beings and actions and things, trying to do things. But God says there's a much higher plane where things actually operate there. And in prayer, we're communicating from our world into that world. And we can sometimes forget that. And we can sometimes forget that prayer is one of the weapons that actually God gives us in our conflict against the kingdom of darkness. So we're fighting a battle, and we feel like our prayer, and we're just saying words, we're just spending time. No, it's much, much more than that. When Paul was listing the armor of God, he finished with this command, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So what he's talking about here is intercession. He's talking about our prayers making a difference much more than just motivating ourselves. Much higher than that, we're affecting and impacting the kingdom that's far above our understanding and our vision. Intersection plays a crucial part in advancing the kingdom of God. And whenever we pray, we pray. we're pray. we not always aware of what's happening and what the results of our prayers are. But I've heard people talk about individuals praying for them for years. It was a spiritual battle, and the person praying probably had no idea the impact of their prayers and what God was doing on a different level. So whenever we pray, we don't always understand what's happening there, but we ought to stand fast. First of all, because of obedience, but knowing that our prayers are impacting things in the spiritual world and the unseen world. Again, what Paul says, there's a battle raging there, and our prayers are shifting things in the the heavenly realm. So we have to persevere, seek God, intercede for his kingdom, to allow his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's so important. That's what was happening there uh, among these believers after Jesus went back into heaven. You know, also one of the biggest misunderstandings about prayer is the primary purpose of prayer, we think, is to get God to do something. Ever have that? You, you want God to do something for you, so you think if I pray about it, then I can surely convince God to do that. And, and, I, and God wants to hear our prayers. And we, but sometimes we feel like we have to convince him to act. But the real reason that we pray is to get God, uh, is to allow God to do something within us. We're not trying to move God, we're trying to move us. And a lot of people discover when they pray that their hearts change, and when God does answer, even though it's not what they originally began praying for, that's what they want. That's the whole process. We're not trying to change God, we're trying to change us, so that we become aligned with God's plan, and we can be a part of making it happen. We might think we know what we want, but in the end, when God's will is done, it's so much better than what we even had in mind. And I got a feeling these disciples, when they came together, they had this idea in their mind what would be great, but what happened was so much bigger than that, they couldn't even imagine it. So God was preparing them to receive His Spirit and to align with His plan. And so that's what our prayers need to be like. Prayer changes us, and prayer also brings unity. Unity. That was another big thing. Remember how much they quarreled among themselves when they began to pray with one another. It brought them together. If you're at odds with someone, you know, maybe you and your spouse are clashing a whole lot, a friend, a sibling, whoever it may be. If you can just start to pray with that person, it will change everything. It's hard to be angry at somebody that you're praying with. Prayer brings unity. It brings people together. It works. So they focused on prayer in that setting there. They also began to prepare organizationally. They had a big job in front of them. And so there were things that needed to be done. They needed to deal with their organization. They also needed to deal with the sin of Judas who had blown everything. This guy had embarrassed the entire group, you can imagine. They needed to acknowledge it, and they needed to replace him. And so we pick up in verse 15. That's what's happening here. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akodama, that is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So he's talking here obviously about Judas who was one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus had called, who had been closest with Jesus and yet who had betrayed him to his enemies. Now, a lot of people wonder, why did Judas Haven have to do, why did somebody have to do that? And the reason is that Jesus was in public all day, but in the evening, he oftentimes was alone. And his enemies wanted to know where he might be in a given time so they could come and arrest him. And only his disciples would have that kind of information. And so Judas was able to lead them in the darkness to a place where Jesus was in prayer. And he was able to go up. And if you recall the the account, he betrayed him with a kiss. So he went directly to Jesus, kissed him, and the, and the, the enemies knew exactly who to arrest. But the interesting thing about Judas is that Judas had been one of the 12. He had shared in the ministry with Jesus. He had been trusted by all of them. He had betrayed that trust. He had betrayed Jesus. And I think in in some ways, this whole thing, this whole situation was like the elephant in the room. You know, it was, everybody knew about it. Everybody was, you know, embarrassed, and obviously it was such a shame. And it had to be addressed. So Peter stepped up to lead. Peter did. There's no introduction, you know, to say uh, uh, that they decided Peter would be the spokesman. Suddenly just Peter stepped up. And even though Peter was pretty flaky at times, Jesus had been working throughout his, his ministry, earthly ministry, preparing him to lead when he went back into heaven. But after, G, after Peter's denial of Christ and after his reinstatement by Jesus, obviously throughout the Scripture you see that he became the acknowledged leader of the group. And so Peter deals with as a leader. He doesn't take a poll. He doesn't say, guys, what do you all think we ought to do about Judas' spot? You know, he just stands up and says, you know, the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture— predicted this, and now it tells us what to do next. What do we do? We go to the Scripture and see what it has to say. You know, so much of Jesus' life had been predicted in the Old Testament Scripture, uh, including the fact that someone would close to Him, someone that He had chosen, would actually betray Him. So Peter says this. He said, the Scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. So the Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament, working in the lives and the word and the words of uh, those who wrote the Bible. And in fact, the entire Bible was written around Jesus. 25% of the Old Testament is prophetic in nature, most of it dealing with Jesus Christ and Jesus coming and what would happen when he did. What God promises will be fulfilled. That's important to note that the prophecies that were fulfilled were made, but there were many others that have not yet been made, and primarily that Jesus is going to come back. And that's what we're living for today. Just as Jesus was promised to come once and and everything that would happen in that time period, the promise is still that one day he will return. And and we have that promise today. We're actually living in that period of time, the time between his comings, his first coming and his second coming. And we're waiting for his return. And we're to be about the mission that he left us, the same one he left them 2,000 years ago, make disciples prepare for the return of Jesus Christ. We believe every scripture is inspired, and it's going to be fulfilled in its time. And why is that? Because it truly is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. So the scripture predicted that someone who would be close to Jesus would betray him for 30 pieces of silver, and it predicted that his place among the 12 would then be taken by someone else. This was all in the Old Testament. Judas Iscariot, obviously he was a man who was notorious, who, who fulfilled that prophecy. And, uh, and also specifically betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Then after the betrayal, he tried to undo what he had done. The Scripture says that he tried to go back. He went back to the priest who he'd taken the money from, and he tried to give it back to him and undo what he had done. I let Jesus go. Let's, you know, let's undo the deal. But they wouldn't do that. And in fact, they wouldn't even handle the money. And so Judas threw it at their feet, and, uh, and then he went away, and he killed himself. Now, the, 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 the uh, chief priest who had paid him, they would not return this money to the treasury because it was blood money. It had bought the life of, of Jesus. So they bought the land where Judas chose to hung himself, and they called it uh, the, the field of blood or a place to bury the poor people. You know, oftentimes the question is asked about Judas, was Judas ever a believer? He was one of the 12, you know, was, was he ever a believer or was he a believer who lost his salvation? And that is a great question. I'm not sure anybody knows the answer completely on that in a person's heart. Jesus said that no one could snatch us out of his hand, but but it's also obvious that sometimes people voluntarily leave Jesus. And Judas is a great example of that for sure. So either Judas was never fully convinced about who Jesus was or something twisted inside of him and he turned away. You know, Judas is kind of interesting, and I want to take a few moments and just talk about him and about the danger. Uh, for us today. But the Bible talks uh, about Judas and says some real specific things about him. For example, the Bible says that, Ju- that Judas was the son of perdition. He was the son of perdition. I didn't know what perdition meant. I don't want to use that word every day. You probably don't either. But the word basically means the, the, the eternal damnation. He was the son of eternal damnation. He was the son of hell. The only other person called that in the Bible is, is, is the Antichrist. And so that obviously is an unbeliever's title. So he was an unbeliever. The second thing that the Bible tells about Judas is that he is called the one who was doomed for destruction, doomed for destruction. You know, nobody forced Judas to do what he did, but God knew what he would do. God knew what he would do, and even it was predicted who who what he would do and who it would be. So Judas doomed himself to hell. The third thing we notice about Judas is that Judas never truly loved Jesus. He was never really a follower. He was never really all in. Judas had one love, and that was money. And he used Jesus to get money. The Bible tells us that Judas was the treasurer for Jesus' ministry. I can just imagine when Jesus was calling them together, going, Now somebody has to handle the money we get. And Judas' hand shot up, I'll do it and everybody else is happy, you know. They don't have to do it. But what they didn't know was that Judas stole from the treasury. He stole from the money that was given to Jesus. That's about as low as you can get. There were a lot of people who gave money to support Jesus and his ministry and his disciples, and Judas stole the money for three years. Jesus was aware of that. And evidently, a lot of other people were as well, because the enemies of Jesus came to Judas, knowing he would take a bribe or take the money and they offered him silver, 30 pieces, to betray Jesus. Judas would rather have the money than Jesus. Guys, that's something to remember in our minds about the value of things and the priority of Jesus. The fourth thing about Judas is that in John chapter 6, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, one of you is the devil. And there was no doubt in Jesus' mind, who he was talking about. Judas had given himself over to Satan. And then a little bit later in John chapter 6, it tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus choosing Judas to be a disciple all the time, knowing at the time that he would one day betray him? He chose him to do that. But you know what? Jesus trusted him or treated him treated him like all the other disciples. He didn't discriminate against him even though he knew that he would turn against him. Judas had free choice, but Jesus knew all along. And then the sixth thing that the Bible tells us about him, at the Last Supper we are told that Judas opened his heart and welcomed Satan in that he was demon possessed. So he just totally gave in to Satan and his work and ministry. You know, it's hard for us to believe (coughs) that Judas did that, right? That he spent three years or so with Jesus, that he heard all of Jesus' teachings, he saw all of his miracles, that he lived and prayed and served with the other disciples, and yet he didn't believe, and that he would go as far as to betray Jesus and then kill himself. That's hard to believe. But you know what? what's even more frightening and difficult to understand is this. That you can be close to Jesus, but never really close to Jesus. That is a danger for all of us in what we think in our mind. I wonder if Judas thought that he was truly close to Jesus. You could have a mom and a dad <coughs> who loved Jesus, and you not love Jesus. You can be in a church that loved Jesus and not love Jesus. You can be in a group, a small group, where everybody else loves Jesus, and you, you can go through all the motions like everybody else and still not love Jesus. And so because of that, we need to ask ourselves do I truly love and follow Jesus? Do I love Jesus more than everything else? Do I love him that much? You know, we look at J- Judas's life and we say, Man, what a horrible waste. But I believe that there are people today who are wasting their life close to Jesus, but not really close to Jesus. I think that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Judas obviously never tested himself or examined himself to see what he was in the faith because when the time came, he failed the test. And that was a hard reality. It was hard for all of them to take. And maybe some of them began to question themselves, you know, am I, who, and, and where I need to be with Jesus? And that's a great question for all of us today. Are you in the faith? Are you truly in the faith? So in that day, it kind of came home. And at that moment, they said, we got to deal with this. And to deal with that, they decided to replace Judas. Peter uh, quotes Psalms 109, where it says, may another take his place of leadership. In other words, it was time to replace him. Let's pick uh, pick another person to replace the, the role that Judas abandoned. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they believed that there should be 12 apostles. Jesus chose 12, and they felt like they ought to have a, a, a 12th person. Also, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, In the Old Testament, and the church would be the continuation and, in fact, the completion of the covenant with God. And so the criteria for his replacement was someone who had been with them since John had baptized Jesus, since the beginning of his ministry, someone who had been constant throughout the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, who had heard his teaching and saw his miracles, and someone who had seen the risen Jesus. So what's interesting is that when we read through the scripture, oftentimes it talks about Jesus. And his disciples, and we might assume that there were just the t- 13 of them, but in reality there were probably a lot of other people who were around. A lot of people who maybe were not of the 12, but obviously followers who had been consistent for all of his ministry, and they were available. And so, let's pick it up. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left us to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the 11 apostles. They cast lots between two guys who met the qualifications, and uh, to choose which one would be selected. Now, casting lots was done by rolling dice or drawing straws. That doesn't seem like a very respectable way to choose an apostle. It's like, two good guys, let's throw the dice and see who shows up. I mean, that is it's kind of odd for us. But in reality, it happened a lot when they made big choices in the Bible in that, those times. And here's why. I'll tell you why. Proverbs chapter 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Isn't that amazing? So here was a random way to choose between two qualified people, a random way for that to happen. So if God had a preference between Joseph or Justice and Matthias, he would certainly influence the outcome. If God can make all of this, he can certainly decide which which way the dice roll, right? Or which straw someone might choose. And so don't minimize that. It was a way to totally give uh, the decision over to God. They did it a lot in the Bible. So Matthias was chosen here by Lot, and he joined the 12 other disciples. Now what you notice about Matthias primarily is that you never hear from him again. That's that's what you notice about it. He never became overly prominent, and in fact, uh, he's never mentioned again in in the Bible. (coughs) But don't assume that he was a failure uh, because, and I didn't realize this, but no one besides Peter and John, none of the other 12 are mentioned again after Acts chapter 1. None of the other 12 are mentioned again. So the Bible isn't focused on personalities as much as it is on what's happening here. So Matthias isn't mentioned a great deal. The church history tells us that Matthias went on to become a missionary to Ethiopia, that he was a missionary. And he, like all the other apostles, (coughs) was martyred for his faith and either crucified or stoned to death. Uh, The accounts kind of vary there. But he became one to replace and then stepped in to help lead the early church. Now, let me wrap up by just talking a little bit about Peter. Peter was the one who became prominent, right? He stepped in to fill the role of leadership. But you often have to keep in mind something about about Peter, and that was his own failure. Peter stepped up to replace Judas, but I wonder if it was a little bit uncomfortable for him. I wonder if it was awkward for him at that place. Judas had betrayed Jesus, but Peter had denied him three times. Both of them had failed miserably, failed Jesus, but there was a big difference in how they responded to their failures, what they did next. Judas walked away from God, walked away from Jesus. He never repented. He killed himself. He sent himself to hell. I think everybody pretty much agrees about that. Peter, on the other hand, failed as seriously as Judas, but he was remorseful. He was, he regretted that. He apologized, repented, and is restored to ministry and faith, and becomes the leader of the group. So Peter took his sins to Jesus, and is restored, and Judas took his sins to the grave. Become, Peter becomes the leader of the church, and Judas becomes a name cursed for eternity. I bet you don't know anybody named Judas. That's the future. I mean, that, that's what, what his future was like, and his eternity is, is sealed, now, here's the reality is that we all fail. All of us do every day. We all sin, but it doesn't have to be fatal. It does not have to be fatal. Peter is, Peter is an example to tell us that we can blow it big time, but we can be restored and we can even be used in ways that we never could imagine. Because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to take your sin to the grave. You take your sin to him and you repent of it. And you ask him, Lord, restore me, use me in a great way. And Peter certainly was used in that way. The purpose of Jesus coming to the earth was to take our sin, to forgive them through his death on the cross, to restore us and then use us for his glory. And that would be my encouragement to you. I don't know where you are, what your past may look like. It's hard for us sometimes to get past that. But Peter's a great example of someone who did, who went on to do incredible things for God, and you and I can do the same thing as well. I hope you're encouraged by that. Uh, We can be very discouraged by the story of Judas but just make sure that we don't live the life he did, close to Jesus, but so, so very far away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. God, as we come to worship you in just a moment, we want to do so with humble hearts. Father, knowing that none of us are any better than Judas, that we all have a Judas heart, that God, there's a part in us sometimes that, that longs for things that uh, would betray our Lord. Uh, We do things and say things, God, that that don't honor you, or or maybe we uh, neglect to do the things we should do. And God, that part of our heart, we pray you would cut out, God, that you would remove that. Lord, help us, as Paul said, that we would examine our hearts and our faith to make sure that we are in Christ, that, God, we don't fail the test. We need to take a test every day, Lord, so that when the final comes, that we know that we are on your side and that we are close to Christ. Father, forgive us of our failures. Use and restore us. God, God, help us to see the mission you've given to the disciples in that day was the same that you give us today. And Lord, give us an encouragement. Give us a joy. Give us a a boldness, a confidence, and an excitement for the mission. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.